0: Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshi's Business Builders, the Seven Network TV show and Digital Network for small business news and inspiration. I'm Adam Bubb, one of the editors here. I'm passionate about finding out the extraordinary backstories of fascinating people who have walked their own roads to success. From pub barons to PR queens, ecopreneurs to edgypreneurs, fashion trailblazers to family business empires, we've had them all on First Act week after week, we dig deep into the stories of Australia's most interesting movers and shakers in business and life. Now, usually I have my co-host, Sess Busby, beside me, but she's on leave, so it's just me on my lonesome. Luckily, I've got a very special guest keeping me company today on the line from New York. Today's guest wears a lot of hats, but mainly a chef's hat. You first saw him on season five of MasterChef Australia, but he's since become a globally renowned chef, restaurateur, cookbook author, athlete, wellness coach, and podcast host on the Epic Table podcast. He owns an impact-driven Australian restaurant in Nolita, New York, called Charlie Street, and is a chef for Chris Hemsworth's Centre Health Advice app. He's also recently joined Australian Eau de grape spirit brand Feels Botanical as a partner and major investor. It's none other than Dan Churchill. Welcome to First Act.
1: It's the intro, mate. It's so always as an Aussie hearing someone rattle off your intro spiel. It's, uh, it can be quite cringeworthy, but that just keeps you very Australian when you're in that still frame of mind, I guess, mate.
0: <laughs> well, you're obviously very down to earth. Uh, you know, even though you're you're sitting there in um in Manhattan right now, uh, living living the life, right?
1: It's a good time of you, Manhattan. It's uh, Obviously, we have uh, the US Open Fashion Week, all these fun games and games, and to be an Aussie here and fly the flag, if you will. We have some pretty cool events on that we can really showcase how awesome our country is amongst um, some of the biggest media events in the world, which is pretty exciting.
0: Now, we always start our chats with the first act, Icebreaker, just to get the juices or botanicals flowing, since that's going to be part of today's chat. <laughs> so my icebreaker for you is... I'm coming over for lunch. I'm gluten-free. I'm bringing two of my colleagues. One is vegan, one is dairy-free. What are you making us?
1: Okay, well, I would give you guys, uh, except for the vegan, I'll give you all the naughty eggs. And then for the vegan, I'll just 86 the eggs. So I'll just make it the naughty. So this is actually a famous dish at our restaurant, uh, Charlie Street, where we have our Charlie Street chorizo, which is a a, a, effectively, a chorizo made entirely out of mushrooms and cauliflower. So we made this at the restaurant; became pretty popular, and um, now you can actually purchase it. But yeah, it's effectively that's what I would do. It's a nice little spice. It's got this really nice local gluten-free bread. And the, the, the eggs from upstate New York are pretty fire on some uh, roast garlic hummus. So no eggs for the vegan. But other than that, it's dairy-free and it's uh, delicious.
0: All right. So what's my vegan friend getting? Because they've got the cauliflower there. That sounds delicious. Is there anything else that you can throw in there just to make sure that everyone's covered?
1: The chorizo itself has got mushrooms that occur a Chilean bass mushroom. It's got cauliflower, shots, garlic, all this nice little crumble in it. What I'll then do is actually add in some King brown oyster mushrooms just to get a little extra we call it sexy appeal when it comes to food so we would probably just do that as well.
0: Sexy mushrooms this is a really good way to start this chat. You know mushrooms are so versatile I mean honestly there's so much you can do with the mushroom like there's um have you tried the um it's the plant-based mushroom uh, fable is, is one of, is one of those really good brands that uh, put uh, do those like mushroom that taste it tastes pretty much like beef.
1: We actually had Fable over for an event. Uh, the, the, the the founder and his legendary chef came over that had, a, had a, events at Charlie Street. So we got to break down some of their deliciousness as well. And because, you know, we're breaking into that market the CPG world with our Charlie Street Chereza and Charlie Street Bolognese, it's really cool to, like, you know, work together on, on this kind of concept. So um, it is really cool to see how versatile mushrooms can be. Full of umami, um, just they've got a type of, Makeup that allows you to sear them, roast them, crumble them, um, and just honestly, they just, just taste delicious.
0: Now, you said CPG. What does that stand for?
1: Consumer Package Goods. So that product I was telling you about, the chorizo, started as an element to our, our menu, and then from there, it got popular enough to then be put into 8-ounce or half-pound pouches. The pouches are now sold in retail, and we're also working with a lot of the professional uh, sporting teams over here in food service and some other local restaurants. So we're scaling our product line in that in that regard too, which has been really exciting and we'll discuss it down the line, but how we're learning more about, you know, the space of products like such as Fields and how to get them into to brands in, in another country like America.
0: We're gonna get a bit further into that as we go along, but I wanna kind of take it a little bit back and let's go back to the beginning about the where your sort of love of food came from because even just in those this first few minutes of chatting with you, it just is, uh, you know, it's transferring from Manhattan to Sydney, right over the over the line here. I can feel it. And as a foodie myself, I love chatting with people who are passionate about food. So was food a big part of your life growing up for you? Did you come from a foodie family?
1: I always say this, but being a, uh, being a child amongst three boys, so the middle one, and I've got an older and younger brother. So being one of three boys plus dad, And and, you know, very heavily involved in sport and rugby. I just, you're always hungry. So the idea of food to me was just, I wanted to always eat it, love taste, particularly pastas and things like that. I wouldn't say mum was adventurous with her cooking. She definitely did it to look after her boys. Dad was a bit more adventurous. He'd get newspaper clippings from like City Morning Herald, pull out the Delicious magazine. And we'd have, he has a solution to that. So every, every single month we'd have a plethora of new recipes to try. But I specifically remember we had a lemon tree in the backyard and Dad was um pretty consistently using, I think it was his, his grandma's recipe to make a lemon meringue pie using the fresh lemons we had. And as a result, I actually developed quite a citric palate. So when I season my food, it's very much towards the uh, the the favour of, of um of citrus. And a lot of that came from I would extend from on that lemon that lemon meringue pie and, and lemons in general. But then from there it's like I you know, I was pretty stoked to have dad create the concept of creating a roster between my brothers and I to learn how to cook, just as a life skill at a very young age. And and despite me following my passion in sport soon after I finished high school, I actually transitioned into a professional career in cooking once I realised it was kind of like a, a dual passion for. Uh, food uh, you know wholesome food and the, the way that it helps you uh, feel and um, honestly move and perform but my initial early days of cooking where you know elbows out the table my older brother brandon my younger brother andrew try to and get through a big bowl of pasta as quickly as we could so we can get our seconds despite being full and it was quite a competition
0: <laughs> wow so look you even you self-published a cookbook didn't you before even going on master chef how did how did that come about
1: yeah, it's interesting. So I was working with a couple of you – know, I was interning with some um, some NRL and rugby codes, and it just turned out that I was talking to a lot of the athletes. And despite like, – so I, I was working with them to help improve their their strength output, particularly in the S&C space. But I realized they, they wanted to learn more about nutrition and how to apply it but didn't understand the science behind it um, and weren't understanding necessarily how – what they were being told at you know the professional level was going to translate to them in the kitchen. So I knew what that information was that were being provided by the I guess the organisation, and then I knew how to apply it through recipes. So I just started creating recipes for them, and as a result, they came back and told me they loved it, wanted some more recipes, and then my mates found out that I was doing this as well. They wanted some recipes and just realised I, I was actually over time creating a little cookbook and. Um, I spoke to like, my mentor at the time and he self-published 16 <laughs> of his own books and essentially said, here's your list of things you need to do. Go do it. And six weeks later, I came back and did and he said, great, let's go publish. And so, um, yeah, self-published dude food. And what's interesting, it's funny when, when you do self-publish, it's like you have these books arrive at, at your door and you're like, oh, cool. But then as a self-publishing person, you got to sell them. So yeah. thankfully, the northern beaches of Sydney have some beautiful um, Bookstores, and they want to look after local community members, and um, you know the book did well enough. <laughs>
0: and, it's, well. And, and, and it also helps have a really catchy name too—something that that no one else is doing. I mean, when you think about where dude food has come since then, like the term dude food has become quite pretty ubiquitous. You know, a lot of different pubs, like they will say, "Oh yeah, you know, our type of food on our menu is dude food."
1: Yeah, hundred percent. It's it's interesting like that that title name for sure was quite catchy and i realized this is probably the earliest part of me learning a bit more about business and sales is knowing who you're selling to and ultimately the the book was aimed for guys to learn how to cook but guys don't t- go to a bookstore to you know buy a cookbook so I, I was kind of aiming it at grandmas moms girlfriends you know aunties anyone who was going to be buying a book for you know a young male of theirs and then didn't want to get them. so i was like well <laughs> you know sell this on the basis of this is a great way to teach them how to cook that you know leaving leaving home or they're going out away to a you know um, self-contained college or something like that that they have to cook for themselves This is a great, great way to do it. It's a relatable book and it had some uh, you know had some dudes in there. so and it's called dude food. So um, yeah, it, it was it was quite catchy.
0: So the thing is like you're not just any old dude like coming up with some recipes. like you you studied a master's in exercise science. That's obviously played, that knowledge that you learned from that degree has sort of played out into what, as, as you've even said, that kind of like cook, that wholesome attitude that you have to food, you know, that it should be nutritional and it should combine flavor, but also be healthy. How does that influence you, that having, having that background?
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting, again, thinking about who you're speaking to whenever I write a recipe or, you know, do my content or whatever it is. And it's always important to think about what's going to get people most interested. And to me, I know this, like taste and flavor are the most appealing things when it comes to food. So I lead with that. I make sure that any of the recipes I create are not, you know, that that's number one to me. If it just so happens to be some sort of educational piece around health, that's like a secondary win because as long as they cook cooking the food in the way that I'm teaching, then I'm, I'm winning, right? Yeah. But I've always had a philosophy of, you know, eliminate refined sugars, eat wholesome ingredients that are whole food-based, um, and they're the main two principles to do so just by eating colorful ingredients. And so I, I applied that to the recipes in the book. I knew that, you know, young males may, like a small percentage of them may actually be super keen on the, I guess, information behind the why. But most of them were like, okay, I want to learn how to cook. Great, this is great. great had to do it. And then it just so happens, the recipes they were cooking were, were, were much better for them. Highly, much higher nutritional value. You know, nowadays we talk about gut health and things like that that we have much more research behind and we can talk to. But at the time, it was much more about, you know, back in the day, it was like you know, protein, fats, and carbs, and that's what people were mostly interested in. I'm like, that's cool. But we also need our colourful ingredients to support all those things. So I just made delicious food that guys would actually cook and be able to cook. That was that was another thing. It's like it's okay to make it delicious, but can someone actually achieve that? Do they one have the time, the skill set, um, or even the resources? Do they even have a frying pan? And they're the things that. I think that I wanted to make sure was actually achievable. It's like one thing to to want it. It's another thing to actually cook it. And once you cook it once, you generally see them come back again a second time and a third time. And that's when you know you've, uh, at least least you've had an impact, which is awesome.
0: That's right. And I I think nowadays, because I think we're talking also like with with Instagram and with TikTok and YouTube, the kinds of videos that we can do now that really illustrate how uh, your food with lots of those colorful ingredients that you're talking about that can actually just look really good too. So people get really excited seeing that on on their socials. So they go, you know what? I'm going to give that a go. So that's also part of it. Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely, man. I think uh, like the team and I every here, we think of we break down our food. Production into like stages, like where's the, the three second catch, we call it. So it's like, mm. what part of the recipe is going to be shown within the first three seconds that's going to catch people's attention for them to stop? And it, it, it's always, you know, the ingredients I use are always whole food based anyway. So if like we take that out of the equation, it's always going to be the case. And still, we still have to find that, 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 uh, magical, I guess, click baity style image or video. But yes, it is 100% part of, part of the production now.
0: As someone in media, I know that <laughs> that that three seconds is <laughs> your make or break. You need to you need to get people 100%. in. Uh, speaking of media and your media career, so you, you go from food and nutrition and exercise. It's 2013, uh, and you apply for just a just a little show called Master Chef. You know, not many people <laughs> know it. <laughs> uh, look, re- reality TV is not for everyone. What what inspired you to enter? So,
1: you know, I think the easiest way to answer this is everyone knows Jamie Oliver, my brothers and my my dad and myself and, and of course, mum. It was the one show we would watch together um, all at once. And so, um, you know, the food aspect to it, the connectedness, obviously cooking and like t- I started at 11. Like dad started that roster, that timetable for us at the age of 11. So in 2013, I was, what, 20? Geez, how old was I? Twenty three, and so you know, I was looking at like life and going, well, I've always loved—I loved cooking shows—and I thought it'd be a great way to have a crash course in learning more about cooking, not from just the recipes themselves, but um, in a unique way, in a unique environment. And so I thought I'd I'd apply, and you know, I, I remember the process quite distinctly. I remember the first dish I actually. I uh, put up to uh, my audition with my lemon meringue pie, and I told the story, and um, you know they, they really enjoyed it. It was a you know the the whole experience, even even the things that you don't see on camera was amazing. Like to learn how to how to cook under pressure, um, perfection, timing, and then to get in, it was um, it was a remarkable experience. Uh, we had some amazing chefs come on, and, and experiences to learn from. So. And then to get out of that, to then go into a kitchen, still learning so much. It's, it's to this day, I still jump in kitchens and starch. Like I still jump in some of the most amazing kitchens in the world in New York City and learn from some amazing chefs. Um, you know, I, I, I love it. I love it so much.
0: Was there anything from that behind the scenes experience that people don't see that is sort of, you know, that that kind of helps you kind of get in the zone or, or that surprised you, you know, like, because I think we, we see it all and, you know, you see all the, the judges go around to people's benches and it, all that kind of thing. Is there anything that surprised you?
1: I wouldn't say surprised me. I, I, uh, I, was, I was genuinely shocked how much the judges gave their time for, um, particularly when you showed an interest in a passion of such nature of food, you know, like it was, it was amazing that I could actually ask questions around nothing to do with stardom, but actually kitchen, you know, like timing of searing, what's this like in this environment? Um, you know, I distinctly remembered, a, uh, one of the episodes we were, um, at Gary's boathouse at the time and we we're cooking a, a service, And I remember going into the service, there's there's things you can't ask, but following up, I actually, I got dish of the day that one. I walked away and I said to Gary, I said, mate, is this, the, is this the typical setup you have and the line setup you have? And he, he pulled me aside and walked me through the whole kitchen again and said, this is actually how we have my station set up. And, you know, they don't, they don't need to do that. They really don't. They don't have to – their job is to essentially present on TV. It really is. But because this kind of show and, and what the series has done is actually created passion and helped people at home. And if you are passionate about – I do the same for me. If you are passionate about something, particularly something I can I can help you with, I, I want to help you because it's so cool to see people in it for the right reasons. So I think that was a remarkable takeaway for me.
0: You were a favorite on the show, but not everyone can successfully transition from kind of a, a very mainstream reality TV show to building your own brand. What mm. challenges did you face in that immediate period trying to trying to leverage that?
1: Yeah, I think um, the, the most immediate thing was I was working on a book, another self-published book that I knew I was going to put out pretty quickly after the show. Now, typically a book takes about a year to publish. Uh, like I'm working on my next book now, and it's not going to be out until end of next year, but that's still a publication. With When you self-publish, it's however long you think it's going to take you to do, right? So I knew that to keep momentum up, I needed to get something out after the show is going to have, uh, air and finish. So I worked pretty hard at that. but. I think the biggest thing I probably did was I actually made a conscious decision not to associate myself too much with the show. I didn't want to re- be remembered for Dan uh, Churchill, the the, the the contestant on MasterChef. I wanted to be known for Dan Churchill, you know, the healthy chef or the chef or whatever it was associated that was more personal to my brand. And that was particularly hard early on because obviously everyone was talking about it that's what you were known for. but I had to be consistent with my personal brand to know where I was going. And I was and I say this very clearly, it's not that I didn't want to be associated with. It. I loved. It was like one of the best times of my life, and I got watching the show and I was part of it and I got to meet and have some amazing friends the rest of my life. It was more a case of for me, my professional career to move forward. If I always was associated with that, I was never. I was never really focusing on. No one, people wouldn't, you know, notice me for me and what my mission was. They always associate me as a contestant on a show. So um, I dug my heels in and, and worked pretty hard to be consistent with the brand, the content, the brand we were putting out. And you know, over a period of time, it it, uh, it seemed to work. And particularly with the book coming out and all those kind of things, it was just, um, you know, there's certain things you work hard for. There's a bit of fortune that comes your way, but every day you do not take it for granted.
0: And you mentioned that you're also known as the healthy chef. I mean, that brand building exercise to kind of build up that reputation of yourself as the healthy chef, you know, (laughs) like that's, um, you go from thinking, okay, well, my passion is food. But I also have to think about how I'm going to be putting myself out there to the world. And I know that in addition to that, you've also done a show called Surfing the Menu with Hayden, who uh, he was on MasterChef too. So you've ended up doing some things that have really played into that, where you come from and telling your story. How do you go about getting that right?
1: Mate, honestly, you know, I had... There's some amazing people in my corner just to counsel me on things. I asked a lot of questions. And so intrinsically, I knew it as well. I knew seeing what had happened and what the show can do. I I knew that this was not a three-year plan. This was a rest-of-my-life plan. I knew that internally, I wanted to have a positive impact in a particular area of food. And so in order to do that, if I was really dedicated to doing that for the rest of my life, then I for the rest of my life couldn't be solely known for this one thing and so I set about knowing what my vision would be and what that would look like and how I can actually action it and I didn't do this just on my own I have, as I said just some amazing people who would support me in ways just having a chat um give me advice and, and um you know, I, I guess one thing I'm, I'm decent at is I'm just being a sponge and learning and, and not having an ego. I don't, Like, you know, I just love learning. I'll, you know, someone said to me, "What, you know, what's, um, what's the best way that you know you you like to speak? And I always say, look, you know, learning in America to be a little bit more direct and come across in a, a confident manner has been a challenge to me, but it's also been a humbling experience to look back on some certain things and go, I've gotten here because of just Taking my ego away and and just learning from some people who, you know, may not be the best in the industry, but they know may, way more than I do, and 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 just being able to sit down and just listen, I think that's so important.
0: Dan, we're going to just take a very short break, but we'll be back with more, and we'll find out a bit more about your experiences in the US in a moment. So we're back with more from Dan Churchill. Now we've gone through your origin story, but let's zip forward a little bit to what happened next. Uh, what prompted you to make the move to the US? You've been there for about six years now.
1: Yeah, mate, been over six and a half years, and I was um, I was always fascinated by America. I always loved watching. I say this, I always loved watching like the American sport films, like Remember the Titans, and uh, you know some of the college-based films too. It was always really exciting to me. But I always was interested in how big it was and how much of an impact it had on society. And and, and, and so I, uh, I, was, I, I was so happy to have a contact through a friend who um, was able to get me in touch with a publisher and they'd seen some of my media and um, it was perfect timing. They you know, asked me to come over and have a chat. And so I did and I ended up getting a book deal and off the back of that book deal, I ended up getting a TV deal, which um, initially got me my visa over here. And um, yeah, I think it was always a fascination. I put out the energy to come to America. I always did. I really wanted to. Um, but uh, there was a few, few things that happened and some amazing people that helped support me to get over here.
0: Now, talking about this TV work there, and you talked about confidence earlier and having a kind of build up that confidence and and america is is so much like tv is is so performative <laughs> compared to mm. the kind of more sort of laid-back nature of australians i guess what did you learn in becoming kind of tv ready oh
1: crash course uh everything's bigger here tell you that much um everything's there's a lot more people, <laughs> like, whether it be Good Morning America, you know, Disney-style shows, you know, daytime cooking shows, Drew Barrymore show, whatever it is. There's just um, a lot more awesome people around. And with that in mind, like I think the biggest lesson was, was actually how to communicate. I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. In Australia, we, we definitely, you know, have our friends and, and our family around us to keep us grounded. And we definitely have tall poppy syndrome, let's face it. We do have that. But when I came to America, it's not good to have that same mentality. They're not here to see arrogance. They're here to see confidence. And so when I was asked a question on TV live about, you know, me succeeding relatively well at a young age in the chef space and, you know, them asking, well, you must be a pretty amazing chef. And I just kind of shrugged it off. I probably delivered something very humble saying, oh, you know, I don't mind cooking, um, just, you know, mom keeps mom happy or whatever it is. And it didn't go down well because to the hosts and to broader America, it's like, well, this, this uh, young man doesn't think too much of himself. He's not confident enough. And and learning about that has helped me change the way that I see the way that questions are asked, not just on air, but offered as well. So you know, it's interesting to to come back to Sydney, which I'll be doing shortly for a week, and doing media again, and even chatting now. It's like if you ask me a question directly about something that's performance based on myself, you you do learn to understand how to how to put that forward without sounding what you know we would be deeming as arrogant. Instead of just answering the question, and so that's been a challenge. That's been a huge challenge. And I know I speaks to a lot of my mates over here, Aussie, and and you know one of the things I will say is it's interesting to have a bunch of mates over here doing really well and you supporting them in a way that they don't feel like they're being cut down. You actually want them to succeed and not that we don't in Australia, but um, that's probably been the biggest challenge coming over here is speaking in media in a way that relates to the audience over here versus the audiences in Australia.
0: Yeah, it's a mentality shift. So talking not just in media but then shifting back to food how different is that food culture in the US?
1: So, yeah, it's, it's dramatically different. But what I will say is being in New York City, you're one, you're built on a farmland and the upstate New York is amazing. Long Island's amazing too with produce. So I would say New York City is not too dissimilar in terms of ethics and values from Australia when it comes to farmers. If I get to, you know, other parts of America, even, you know, parts of Jersey, um you you definitely start to see things change a little bit and it's great because you're exposed to a whole different area of life you've never seen i was just in on my way up to rhode island with my girlfriend over the weekend and you you get exposed to different things i got to you know understand values of cooking with butter versus different oils and and so i think um one of the best things about our country as australia is that we we are so dedicated and we 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 champion our farmers like they're celebrities um, and maybe not enough as we already should because they're just legends. The amazing female and male farmers and, and, and generation of farmers coming through, creating some of the best produce and um, our soil is rich. I think we do put a lot more um, resources towards farming compared to some other countries too, just because we have a high regard for obviously exports as well. But what I would say is over here, it's a big country. There's different pockets of different types of, civilizations and things like that That you know in new york and la are very similar la probably more so on the, on the vegan front um new england northeast has much more of an irish british impact down south towards georgia and florida completely different more of a I would say connection to like Puerto Rico and Costa Rica. And then you go to like down south of LA, you're close to Mexico. So I think one of the coolest things about the culture here is we are multicultural in Australia and we have a a huge Southeast Asian influence, but being in America, you have a set of countries that you're neighboring. So you're exposed to different chilies, different corns, Mexican food is awesome everywhere. Uh, So, you know, I think that's one of the coolest things about living over here for sure.
0: Now, your restaurant in New York, Charlie Street, good for you, good for the planet is your mantra there. What inspired you and your, your co-founders to to open that cafe in New York?
1: Yeah, we wanted to have a, Selfish, the selfish answer is I wanted coffee that was awesome for the rest of my life. <laughs> that was a selfish answer. Um,
0: you can come here, stay here in Australia, we've got plenty of great coffee.
1: Yeah, I know it's it's uh, we we have it very good. We have people, we had like eight people come in today when I was you know, Australian on separate occasions, just saying we've just been looking for awesome coffee, and it has gotten a lot better in the last six nine years I've been there. Like, coffee is much better than what it was when I first arrived, but. Um, it is awesome to still be that copy spot for people who need it, um, but yeah, effectively, I would say that you know we wanted to help bring another Aussie style influence to to Manhattan and do it in our own unique way. We initially, starting as a fast casual and, and navigating to a cafe concept, and and now it's evolved into having our own product line, which is, you know, taking up some exciting time and, and you know, has, has a really paved a pretty exciting future for us. So um, I think at the heart of it we, we, we do love having cafe culture in Australia and where it brings from a social output just to our friends and family to now like, you know, having having that same community here is what we've always wanted.
0: The locals have have taken it up with with Gusso. It isn't just Aussies coming in, Aussie travellers who are just going, oh, I miss my eggs back home. It's the locals in the Big Apple who are, you know, really enjoying what you're offering. Why do you think that's the case?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think we often get the comment that Aussies just do breakfast really well or, like, you guys know how to make good coffee and I think there's been a shift in seeing that what was once a necessity to eat breakfast and even coffee was just like, you know, I'm going to get some energy. It's not a flavor concept. People now learn to understand a slow learning understanding of like what coffee means, and it's more than just caffeine. It's actually much more. It's the different flavor, unique vibes we provide. It's the fact that it's got four times the flavor notes than wine and we should treat it as such um it's also the social outing like people grab coffee in the morning and chill out and catch up with their mates before work and we all know this in australia but it's not the same like you have i'll wake up when i first moved here i'll wake up at you know a lot of people in australia wake up at 5 5 30 go for their you know first gym session a run or their local circuit whatever they're doing and they'll grab a coffee with their mates afterwards and if I did that here, which I do now, I'm up and there's no one in the city awake. It's like, you know, there's there's maybe 10, 20 people around the local area. It's just like, one, it's cool because you have the whole, whole of Soho to yourself, which is pretty cool. But two, it's interesting because there's no market for like early coffee shops. When we opened up or first got here, I was like, I want to open up a coffee shop. It's like 5.30. Like if I open up at 5.30 in Sydney, it's standard. You know, it's stock standard. It's like people on the way to work or they've got you know, they're about to get a gym session, whatever it is. Here at 5.30, people are just not even awake yet to even get to the coffee shop. So um, it's, it's interesting how things change, but over time we've seen whilst that time is still not right, like when I say right, people aren't still getting up that time yet, they are now getting more interested in actually getting good coffee in the morning before work or before their day starts.
0: Yeah, and it's about enhancing your everyday experience. I think a lot of people what they've found from the pandemic was that you can do things, you can do these simple things that can kind of just set you on the right path each day and it's not, I'm not saying, oh, you know what, go out for breakfast every day. We can't afford to do that every day. <laughs> you certainly can't. But it can be that, you know, that takeaway you know, cup of coffee that you have in the morning um that becomes part that's part of your routine. And that can be something that really gets you, you know, it, it just gets you in the right zone.
1: That's honestly it. It's um, it's it's for us. We know that we need our coffee is part of our habitual routine, and it's slowly starting to get that way. Uh, unfortunately, there still is the the, the, the relationship. say so Starbucks, um, but <laughs> I was we're slowly, gonna we're slowly beating it down. We're slowly beating it down.
0: Yeah, that's tricky, because huh? they've just got this history there, um, this legacy. Uh, you know, people think coffee in the US, they think Starbucks. Um, I personally don't think it's really even coffee, but <laughs> anyway, that's another <laughs> mate, story.
1: Mate, do you, how much time have you got? Here's my philosophy, right? When well, people <laughs> come to me and say, Can I have a coffee? And they say, What would you like? I'm like, I would like a hazelnut frappuccino. I'm like, sorry, we don't do that. And I'm just in my head going, that's a milkshake with, with caffeine. So yeah, yeah. And I love, I love like that's, that's, a, that's a difference, right? It's not, that's me probably with a bit of a chip on my shoulder, being an Australian going, that's not coffee. We know what the farmers go through to get amazing quality flavors. And um, that's just, that's the thing. It's like, we're not right. They're not wrong. Um, it's just the case of what we've been brought up with. Right. And so slowly, we're integrating these these cultures and these way of life with, with, with the different society, which, uh, you know, look at us, we probably trained just a bit quicker, but we love our burgers and, and to some degree some hot dogs and things like that that are more predominantly in America.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, look, I, I, there are other things that you do in, in your world too. Like this is that kind of mission that you have in being kind of like sort of being able to educate people, but not in a sort of pushy way, but just show them the possibilities um, kind of is very much in what you do uh, in other parts of your career. You, you're you also part of um, Chris Hemsworth's Centre app. You're the chef and nutrition and fitness expert. Um, how did that come about?
1: Mate, yeah, it's it's an awesome role. I love it. It's uh, it's a great one because it's a proud well – what started as like a good solid Australian company where the team in Melbourne crush it, um, has really evolved into a global impact app, if you will, so I remember chatting to Chris at a Tourism Australia event. Would have been would have been like four or five years ago now, and we're just talking about health and fitness and food and you know the bloke obviously has to eat a lot um, for for his his roles, particularly his Um But yeah, and then you know effectively from then he remembered talking about that and got his team to get in touch with me regarding uh, the rollout of his app that was very much in relation. I didn't know at the time, but he was at the time you know, putting this concept together for this app. And so, um, yeah. And ever since it's been a dream to work with, obviously being fellow experts with, you know, Luke Zocchi, who's his, his trainer and one of his closest mates and, um, just working with the team at Loop um, who, who helped produce the content. And it's, it's a dream because I feel being, being the Aussie over here in the States as well, I can connect to the, what we call the center legends who are the American, the American center legends, Uh, on behalf of the Australian cohort. And it's really, really cool to do that. So, um, you know, we all caught up, um, the center team caught up earlier this year in LA and uh, we had a massive long, long lunch and, you know, Chris was doing reshoots and he came in late and still managed to say hello to everyone. It was just one big happy family. It's an awesome team. We love it.
0: Yeah. And you must have loved getting a bit of Aussie coffee there. No, <laughs> <Mate>, honestly,
1: <laughs> guaranteed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> guaranteed. Now, now um, before we wrap up, I do want to touch on the fact that you're coming back to Australia this month to work with um, Ode v, uh, and uh, you're working with uh, Fields Botanical. So how did that partnership come about and um, what excites you about working with Australian Botanicals?
1: No, this is honestly such a passionate opportunity for me. Um, so Blake... One of the founders, he, he and I uh, played rugby down at Newport together, you know, many, many years ago. Um, I didn't didn't stay in touch. And then, you know, about a year and a bit ago or about a year ago, um, a, a mutual friend of ours who also played rugby got us in touch again. And Blake told me what he was, what, what him and his business partners were doing. And I was just blown away. I've never been personally done alcohol before like straight up it's obviously in that category and this was such a like my team and I go through a pretty diligent process to understand everything on brand and whatnot but when we first looked at the brand the everything from the look and feel was so Australian and awesome and, and just connected with me like I'm passionately talking about this right now so then using a very unique concept of you know, creating the alcohol through the ODV, ODV process and, and what that does uh, using a very sustainable, sustainable fruit to do so, uh, and then the kicker for me was: I'm really passionate about sharing more about not only Australia, but our indigenous Australians and the foods that are associated with that. So the botanicals that we use in in the respective four different uh, SKUs is, is is awesome. And so whenever I talk to someone about it, particularly who's not Australian, and help them understand and tell the story, it's something that I I cannot but just be super passionate about finding a product that connects to my country where I'm from. Um, and then in a way that's unique, I don't see it being used too often anywhere else. So I think there's a good point of difference in the market um, and, and has an impact. And and it's, it's really exciting because there's so many things I can talk about with these ingredients. There's so many different ways we can not, we have to sell. It's like, a, it's, it's a unique opposition and, at the same time, the product tastes awesome. Like I don't drink a lot of, I have red wine every now and then, but in terms of me, like I'll sit down now and have a chilled do on like ice, and it's just it's awesome. And it's you know, it, for someone who lives on the other side of the planet to have this product here, it, it makes me it makes me not homesick, but it helps you envision like that that you know, Sydney Northern Beaches or Byron Bay, that kind of feel that. I, I love. So, um, and I guess in a long winded way, mate, straight up, I'm just absolutely passionate about what this brand and company stands for.
0: I love that you're, you know, you're backing an, an alcohol brand here that is, um, you know, you've got sustainability built into there, but also that, you know, you're still, you still have the reputation as a healthy chef and it is really about balance. Um, and I think everyone kind of has their own version of what what that looks like there, there are some people out there who would think, oh you know what he's a healthy chef he probably doesn't drink at all and that's perfectly fine for a lot of people and you know a lot it is good to, to limit alcohol intake and that's obviously very important but you know to be able to enjoy a product like this and to enjoy it you know in moderation like that's um, that's a special another one of those special things that you can kind of bring into your day
1: yeah man like the the interesting thing is like this is me investing into the brand it's not like they're paying me to do anything so i'm personally i feel passionate behind it and so whereas other times you've been offered opportunities to do things um with a company by such nature they're very much like transactional whereas i feel this brand stands for everything that i want which includes enjoyment and satisfaction and and relaxed and chill vibes and so when I look at the concept of alcohol, where that plays a part in our lives, I, I do often talk about, you know, unrestricted um, choices. And so what I mean by that is we we often associate health with having steamed broccoli and the most basic grilled chicken, and that's because it's you know minimal fat, no flavour, but it's uh, apparently healthy, right? Well. Health encompasses so much more than we what we used to envision with nutrition, physical activity. We have the things of social, um, you know, social encounter. We have the endocrine system, which is responsible for our hormones. We have our some people very spiritual, and that's a big part of their lives. So, in order to be ultimately healthy, we have to be somewhat happy. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone should enjoy chocolate as a result of me saying this, but I do often say that in order to have that balance and release the serotonin and endorphins to our brain, which light up when we enjoy a beautiful pasta dish or our favourite vegetable or whatever it is, you have to allow that to happen, right? And so sitting down and and enjoying um, a beverage or, um, or something that maybe not regarded nutritionally as the best thing for you, is counterintuitive to actually encompassing what health on a holistic scale stands for. And in saying that, Ode, like the O process uses the natural sugars found in grapes. So we're not adding anything other than just the natural distilled product of grapes. So we're not adding sugar, we're not doing anything like that. So in terms of the product itself, it's actually, you know, other, aside from what the concept of alcohol does, you know, if it stays in your system for too long, if you have too much of it, it's actually a very good for you alcohol if you were to put it on the scale of where that stands too. So again, it actually technically is on brand when I think about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that we I love that you brought it back to back to being on brand, yeah. Dan. Look, yeah. i I would love to keep chatting with you about all of this, but that's all we have time for today. For more info, head to danchurchill.com or feelsbotanical.com.au for more about feels botanical. And thank you, Dan, for joining us.
1: Adam, my absolute pleasure, mate. And, uh, you know, much love to to the team. Uh, It's been a pleasure and looking forward to chatting maybe next time in person.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. uh, You listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of First Act. Give us a five-star review if you're loving these chats and be back next week for another First Act conversation.